Kings chapter number one. And while you turn there, I was thinking whenever Jim made that comment about the difference between Sam and Carol and the way they give prayer requests, that's that's pretty universal. I, I remember hearing a fellow say one time years ago, you know, men, if, if you ask two people how something went to describe something, men are pointers and women are painters. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you ask a fellow what something was like, they'll point at it. If you were to say, what do them flowers look like? You'd point and say like that right there. If you ask a woman what them flowers look like, they'll paint you a whole picture in words of exactly what they look like. And uh, that's all right. That's the way God created us. Amen. And uh, of course, there's a reason we don't give you a sheet of notebook paper on Wednesday nights. Amen. We give you we give you that note card. But uh, but I'm thrilled that we're able to be here tonight. Turn in your Bibles, James chapter number one. I'd like to read just a few verses of scripture to you and then preach to you out of the word of God. James chapter one, verse number 13. The word of God says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this day, this opportunity to be here in your house. Lord, been so many things today that we can and should praise you for. But Lord, most of all, we praise you that we can be in the house of God, that we can gather here tonight, that we can hear the preaching of thy word, Lord, that your Holy Spirit can minister in our hearts and that, Father, we can uh, gain a clearer picture of the truth of the Word of God and understanding of what it says to us and that it might engraft into our souls that we might be made more into the image of Christ. Lord, we love you. ask you to bless this time. Speak to people. Move upon hearts. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to take a few moments tonight and preach to you on the topic of temptation. Now, very often when we talk about temptation, when we preach on it, I think there is a tendency amongst the people of God. And let me say, uh, particularly on a Wednesday night in the house of God and and uh, in, in a time when very often on Wednesday night you've got a lot of people in the house of God been saved more than a few minutes. They've been saved a number of years and they've walked with God uh, for a number of, of years and a great length of time. I think there's a, a tendency to look at that topic of temptation and say, oh, preacher, that's for, you know, that's for new Christians. They need to hear preaching on temptation. Those those uh, baby Christians, those Christians that are still on the milk and haven't moved on to the strong meat of the Word of God. Or maybe there's a tendency to say, you know, well, preaching on temptation, really, you know, that that's fit for young people. And, uh, you know, teenagers need to hear about the great temptations and pitfalls that lie in front of them. But, you know, if we have that that tendency to think of temptation in that way, it betrays in us a fundamental misunderstanding both of ourselves and of the danger of temptation. I got news for you tonight. I don't care how long you've been saved, you're still going to face temptation. I don't care how spiritual you believe yourself to be, you're still going to face temptation. There's going to be times when things tempt you and uh, really I would say this, that uh, depending on how astute and observant we are, we'd probably all have to admit that every day of our lives we are tempted Uh, with sin and with wrongdoing. And so I'd say this, that preaching on temptation, man, it ain't just for the baby Christians. It ain't just for the biologically young, but all of God's people need to be aware of the great danger there is in temptation to sin in our lives. And so I want to preach to you on this thought, when he is tempted. I find it interesting, the Bible don't say if he is tempted, but your Bible says when he is tempted. 
uh, you're going to face temptation. It, it may be sooner, it may be later, but sooner or later you will face temptation in your life. What tempts you may be different than what tempts other people. Uh, there are certain things that just by virtue of, of my personality, of how God created me, and probably of my life, my experiences that do not uh, tempt me, and then there are other things that are a temptation to me, uh, but there might be things uh, for you that are a temptation for you that may not be a temptation for other people. But when we speak of temptation, we need to define what we mean. Uh, the first step in discussing any topic really ought to be to define your words. Find out what you mean when you say temptation. But when I read in the book of James chapter number 1, one of the fascinating things to me is when we speak of temptation, there are basically two definitions in the Bible for it. And very often you'll find even seasoned saints of God conflating and, and mixing up these two different uh, definitions. And it can lead to some very serious error in your understanding of the Word of God. And I think James goes out of his way under inspiration of the Holy Ghost to define these two types of temptation and to clarify God's attitude and what should be the believer's attitude for both these types. Look a little earlier in James chapter 1. Look back in verse number 2 of this chapter. And notice what James says. He says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now, whoa, hang on a minute. I thought I just read further on down in the chapter that God doesn't tempt any man. I thought I just read that uh, temptation is not within the capacity of God to experience nor within the capacity of God to dispense out to any man. But here James is telling me I ought to joy when I fall into diverse temptations. Now, read on a little further. Verse 3 says, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Now, why did he say the trying of your faith? He describes that as being synonymous with this word temptation. So, in other words, I would say this. We could give the first definition of temptation, or we could say temptation number one is trials, testing, and affliction. In other words, as James says it, it's the trying of your faith. And he goes on in verse 4 to say, but let patience have her perfect work that she may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. He closes this discussion about this first type of temptation in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So in other words, the first way we could talk about temptation, or the first definition for it, is the trying of your faith. Trials, testing, affliction. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, uh, boy, we're just going through diverse, difficult temptations. And what oftentimes people mean is they are going through hard times, storms, trials, difficulties. Now, God's attitude about that is that these storms, these trials, these temptations of this sort can bear spiritual fruit in your life. It can make you perfect, wanting nothing, meaning lacking nothing in your spiritual development. In other words, God uses trials and afflictions to perfect the child of God. What should our attitude be? Well, we ought to count it all joy. Hey, listen, James didn't like trouble any more than you like trouble. Uh, James didn't like affliction any more than I like affliction, but he had observed this in the people of God, uh, that God uses that to develop them spiritually and therefore knowing that we have a sovereign God in control of every bit of our afflictions and trials, we can rejoice and count it joy that God is working in our lives. So this is the first type of temptation. It is trials, testing, and affliction. But almost as though James is wanting to show a stark contrast between the two ideas, 
Verse number 13 introduces to us the second type of temptation. He says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted, and here we have our first clue, with evil, with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But he tells us what temptation is in verse 14. He says, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Therein lies that definition for the second type of temptation. If the first usage of the word temptation is trials, testing, and affliction, or as the Bible says it, the trying of your faith, the second type of temptation, we could call it the solicitation to commit sin. When we are drawn to commit evil, even that word evil, I don't want to get in the weeds here, i got a message to preach, but even that word evil in the Bible has two connotations. There are times it's used to describe unpleasantness, things that are undesirable, and then there are times when it is uh, used to describe things that are morally corrupt, and that's what we find here. It's saying that, uh, that to commit sin, the desire to commit sin, to engage in evil, that that is another definition for temptation. And it is within that context that we find this truth about temptation in our text tonight. He's talking about the temptation or the solicitation to commit sin and to do evil. And listen, we all have the temptation at times to do the wrong thing. It doesn't matter who you are, how spiritual you believe yourself to be, we all are tempted to do evil. But how many of you know the best way to defeat an enemy is to learn their strategy? And that's why God reveals to us some fascinating and informative things about what temptation is, how it works. Uh, Listen, I don't want the devil to blindside me. I don't want sin to blindside me. I want to know how temptation is going to come. I want to know how it's going to approach me in my life. And that's what God discloses here. So I want you to notice four thoughts with me tonight, and then we'll be done. First off, I want you to notice the origin of temptation. Now, here's what James is going to do. He's going to clear up a lot of bad theology. There are some folks have the idea that when they find themselves in a situation to commit sin, that it is permissible for them to go ahead and commit sin because, after all, God's sovereign and He put them in that situation in the first place. Let me tell you something. I don't find that God anywhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible teaches me explicitly here that when you are tempted to commit sin... When you have that tendency, that desire to commit sin, that is not of God, it is of your flesh, it is of the world, it is of the devil, it is not something God sanctions, it is not something that God spurs, it is not something that God excuses or sanitizes, it is something that is wholly and entirely not of God. One of the things you'll find about bad doctrine is bad doctrine makes for bad living. Bad doctrine makes for bad living. And you'll find that for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch. You've heard me say that before. Uh, there's a crowd that uh, believes that uh, our ultimate free will uh, trumps any of God's opinion or plans or desires and, and that we uh, are, have so much free will that we can choose uh, to dismiss or to throw away the salvation that God has given us. That our salvation is wholly dependent upon our own righteousness and on our own good works. This would be the charismatic crowd today that believes that you can send away your salvation. That if you sin, that God throws you away. That God wasn't expecting that you're a sinner. Do you know God knew you as a sinner when He saved you? He knew everything He was going to do wrong. I mean, listen, they, they behave as though God is surprised that we sin. Hey, I'm not even surprised that people sin. God, sure enough, ain't surprised that people sin. And uh, so there's that ditch on, on one side of the road. Now, wouldn't you think that'd make people clean living? 
Wouldn't you think if a man thought he could sin away his salvation, it would make him extra careful and extra watchful? But I've not found that to be the case, Brother Ken. In fact, I find that that crowd that leads you to lose your salvation normally is a very loose crowd in their standards and in their separation. Most of the time, they just live any old way they want. You know why they've done that? Because they're, they've done, waved the white flag. They've thrown in the towel. They've said, I can't live perfect. Uh, and obviously I cannot behave uh, perfectly, so I just ain't even going to try anymore. That crowd is typically not a, a, a clean crowd or a straight crowd in the way they live and behave. Typically it is a loose crowd. But now there's a ditch on the other side of the road. That's a Calvinist ditch. And that crowd believes that God's so sovereign that He doesn't decide that, that God has rubber-stamped every single bad decision you're ever going to make. I got news for you. Listen, we ought not blame our sin on God. Uh, we may choose to be rebellious and disobedient and walk contrary to the truth of the Word of God. But uh, listen, God's not to blame for that. God is not surprised by it, but God did not choose that for us, nor did He mandate that we live and behave that way. I, I believe that I believe I have free will and I believe God does too. Somebody say amen to that. I don't believe God's choice and free will is threatened by my free will. Amen. And I don't believe that uh, God having free will negates me having free will. I believe I choose what to do in life. I believe that God is God and that He has will and He has desire and He has choice and He has volition. And I believe both of those things can live in the same Bible. And I find that they do. So in other words, we, we could say this tonight. Uh, bad doctrine makes for bad living. And if you misunderstand what's being said here in the text, if you walk away with the idea, just reading that first half of this chapter, uh, that God is okay with us yielding to temptation, or even that when we are tempted, let me say, it is not a sin to be tempted. We are all tempted. Uh, but with that being said, that does not mean that that temptation, meaning that solicit solicitation to commit evil, is of God. God is not honored by that desire in us to do wrong. Uh, God loves us too much to put us in the way of the solicitation to do evil. That's not of God in any way. So in other words, uh, we did a little preaching there. Uh, we find here an absolute statement about God's nature. Look what it says. Let no man say. Now, that's what your Bible says. Let no man say. So if we want to say, well, I couldn't help but, but drink that liquor because God put the bottle in front of me. No, you got no right to say that. Uh, if we want to say, well, I couldn't help but look at them, uh, look at them in just because God just God put that in front. No, no, listen. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. And here's why. It says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Uh, God does not have the capacity to commit sin. Now, I'm going to give you a little more theology here in a second, so you just hang with me. But understand that sin is foreign to the nature of God. God, in all of His infinite wisdom, does not experientially understand sin because He cannot commit sin. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, then how does He know what I'm going through? Well, you just hang with me here. That's part of the reason, listen carefully, that God had to be manifest in the flesh to intercede for us. In other words, God in His eternal, infinite glory could not understand what the temptation of sin was. So here's what he did. He robed himself in flesh, feeble flesh, so that his son Jesus Christ, who we know they're one and the same. You understand that. There's three distinct persons, right? But they are all one in character and in, and in quality uh, that, that his son Jesus Christ could be robed in flesh and be tempted to sin so that whenever we sin and we pray and we say, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling, I need your help, God could say, well, son, I know what you're going through. I can help. That's what the book of Hebrews teaches us. Hebrews chapter number 2 says this, verse 17, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him. That means it was appropriate. That's what that word behooved means. It means it, it was commendable. It was appropriate. It was, it was required 
upon him. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, you say, well, preacher, what do we do about that? Well, listen to what Hebrews 4 says. Uh, you know this, you'd probably quote it to him. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Now, some folks want to say, well, preacher, that's talking about that first type of temptation, just trials and affliction and suffering. Look what he says next. He says, it's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, because of his human vessel, his human body, he could sense and understand the temptation to sin. Though he had no sin nature, he could understand the temptation to sin, but he never committed any sin. Uh, the Bible tells us in three ways in three places. It tells us in a lot more places than that, but in three places very clearly that Jesus was sinless in His earthly life and ministry and that He still is sinless and He always was sinless. It tells us that He knew no sin and that He did no sin and that in Him was no sin. So let me be abundantly clear with what I'm saying. I'm not saying Jesus committed sin. He committed no sin. But I'm saying that in being robed in flesh, He could understand, He could empathize with the temptation to commit sin. And so that's the reason the Bible says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when you and I are tempted to commit sin, we ought not blame that on God. Amen. Uh, but we ought to recognize that that's something that doesn't come from heaven. That comes from a little lower. That comes from our flesh. It comes from the machinations of hell. It comes from the world. It does not come from God. So there's an absolute statement about God's nature. And that then leads to an absolute statement about God's behavior. Uh, because of this, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. As a result of that, God cannot and will not and does not bring the solicitation or the desire or the opportunity to commit sin into your life or into my life. Now, it's important because of how bad this can mess us up doctrinally. And by the way, when you get messed up doctrinally, you get messed up practically. It's important that we understand this fundamental truth. Elsewise, we'll try to excuse away our sin because we'll say, well, the Lord knows my frame, but I'm but dust. And we'll say, you know, well, God put me in this situation. And so God knew I had no choice but to sin. You'd be amazed what you have the capacity to turn away from. You'd be amazed what you have the capacity to turn away from. Now, I'm not implying a man can ever live perfectly sinless in this life. We understand because of the infirmity of the flesh. Uh, even, even if we had a desire to, we don't have the will to, we don't have the discipline to. But let me tell you this, uh, every time you and I sin, we have made a deliberate choice to engage in sin. We're not just uh, dancing to the, to, the, uh, to the tune of our DNA. Uh, we've exercised our choice. We've decided to. Uh, the world wants us to believe we're just uh, sort of automatons that are just marching along in our programming. That's not the case, my friend. You and I have choice in our life. We decide whether to engage in sin. So we first learn about the origin of temptation. We can't look at God and say it came from God. It did not come from God. So then the question is, well, preacher, where then does it come from? So we see not only the origin, but we see the occasion of temptation. Look what it says in verse 14. But, here it's going to tell us where it comes from. But, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and in times. 
So we could suggest this tonight. I'm not just going to say that. I'm going to say it dogmatically, all right? The world wants us to sin, but the world can't make us sin. The devil wants us to sin, but the devil can't make us sin. God does not want us to sin, but because He respects our free will, He will not absolutely prevent us from sinning. Now, who does that leave? Listen, if it's not my brother, not my sister, who's it left? It's me, O oh Lord. It's us. We choose to. It does not come from externalities, but it comes internally. Now, I'm going to say a word about those externalities here in a moment, but we need to understand that it comes from within us. It is our choice. It is our desire. It is our sin nature that gives us that proclivity, that tendency to do wrong. And you know, that's even contained in our text here. I, I want you to notice something. We're going to jump ahead, then we're going to jump back. Alright, so just stick with me. We're about to climb in the time machine. Look at verse 15. It says, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but James just introduced to us a profound metaphor. He likened the experience of temptation and yielding to it to the experience of conceiving and bearing a child. He uses that term conceived and it is a, it is a maternal word. It is a word connected with the idea of giving birth to a child. Let's see if we can track along with that a little bit. Now, if a child is, uh, is, is going to be born, uh, there's got to be parents, correct? Is, is that that hard? Somebody get me a health textbook. We're, we need to do a little catch-up. Yeah. The, somebody get me a whiteboard. Amen. If a, if a child's going to be born, it's got to have parents. You didn't hatch out of an egg. I've met folks look like they did, but you didn't hatch out of an egg. No, you had parents. All right? It took a mother and it took a father. Can we find those in our text? I believe we can. Now, stop and think about it. Who is it that carries the child, bears the child? In fact, we could say this. Who is it that the child is conceived within? It's the mother, correct? Well, the Bible says in verse 15, then when lust hath conceived. When some of you young families are having kids, we don't ever say, hey, did you hear that Tim is pregnant? You don't say, hey, did you hear that Alex is pregnant? We don't say, did you hear that Taylor is having a baby? No, we don't say that. What do we say? Well, we say the mother is having a child. Right? So we could maybe say this tonight. In this illustration, the lust is the mother. Now who does that then leave us with? Look what it says in verse 14. It says, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. So in this illustration, we could maybe say this, that lust is the mother of sin and enticement is the father of sin. Now how does that inform our text here? Well, I would say this. That in the bearing and delivering of a child, obviously a father must be involved. But some of you ladies can give me a hearty amen here. The mother does most of the work. The father's uh, investment into that experience is short-lived until that baby gets here. And then all the daddy can do after that is just hold her hair when she pukes and bring her ice cream and, and just try to make uh, all the problems in the world go away. But it is the mother that is bearing the child. It is her that is growing the child. It's her that is carrying the child. It's her, somebody say amen, that's getting kicked by the child. She has the most direct involvement. Let me make this statement here tonight. The internal tendency towards sin. I would say this, lust is the mother of sin. It is in the womb of lust that temptation develops in the action of sin. Uh, it is within us. Let me say that enticement is the externality, right? 
You are enticed from an external entity. If something is enticing you, it is not you. It is separate from you, but it is drawing you unto itself. But the lust is the internality. It's that which is within us. The enticement is external. The lust is internal. So I would say this, that lust is the internal tendency towards sin. It's that part of us that sin appeals to. Listen, the devil don't have to work too hard on most of us. You know why? Because we're born in sin. It is our nature to sin. Listen, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We have a sin nature. You know this to be true. You didn't have to teach your children to lie. You didn't have to teach them to steal. You didn't have to teach them to be mean and to bite others. Uh, They did that all on their own. It was in their nature to do so. And I would say this, that we can look to the externalities and blame our sin upon those things. Well, I was around somebody that got me into trouble. I remember hearing somebody say years ago, you know, you always hear parents say, you know, well, you pray for my child, they're, they're running with the wrong crowd. The preacher said, I'm talking about with, with a, with a back as, as hard as a, as a saw log. He said, you ever start to think maybe the other parents are saying that about your kid? We always say, my kid's in with that bad crowd. You, you ever wonder if there's a mother on the other side of town saying, pray for my little boy. He's running with a rough crowd and talking about your kids or my kids. Uh, we always have this tendency to say, well, it's just, you know, it was the situation I was in, or it was the crowd that I was with, or it was something that I just sort of tripped into and, and fell into. No, listen, I understand those things like a father. They must be a part of the equation. There must be opportunity to sin. But that is not the preeminent reason we sin. The preeminent reason we sin is not because of the opportunity. It is because of the tendency. Listen, you say, preacher, why is that important? Because we live in a sinful world. If you're looking for an opportunity to do wrong, it's going to be on every street corner. And if the only excuse you need to commit sin is the opportunity, you're going to live a sinful life. Until you understand that just because you are faced with temptation, that does not mean you have to engage in sin. It does not mean you have to yield to sin. That the the chief performative actor of iniquity in your life is not the folks around you tempting you. It is that old man within you that is yielding to that temptation. Until you understand that, you won't be equipped to fight it. You need to understand where the primary source is of temptation. We see that internal tendency towards sin, but we understand there is an external opportunity to sin. And we would say if lust is the mother of sin, that it is in the womb of lust that temptation develops into the action of sin, we could say that enticement is the father of sin. It is required, but it is much less involved in the developing of sin. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, uh, what's a good rule of practice? Let me say this. We ought, we ought, to, <laughs> we ought, we ought to perform spiritual abstinence. You ready? I'm sure that has some wild, crazy definition if you Google it, so don't Google it. But just for the sake of the message tonight, can I tell you, there's one type of birth control that's 100%, and that's abstinence, right? They used to teach that in schools, didn't they? Uh, now they want to handle them pills and packages and all kinds of things, but they used to teach them in school. There's a surefire way. Unless your name is Mary, there is a surefire way to guarantee uh, that there won't be any unexpected pregnancies. That's abstinence, correct? But now let's apply this to the spiritual realm. You say, now preacher, I want, I want to live right. I want to live clean. I want to be honoring unto God. How can I do that? Well, first, you have to recognize that that temptation to commit sin, it lives within you. There is a weakness within you to commit sin and to do wrong. But now let's just take it a step further. One of the best ways to guarantee that ain't going to happen is don't ever find yourself in the place of enticement. 
Don't find yourself in the place of enticement. Uh, listen, why do we keep a watch on teenagers? Don't get nervous, alright? Don't get nervous. Why do we keep a watch on teenagers? Because we don't trust them. Because they're not to be trusted. Uh, it's not that they're mean, although a lot of them are. It's not that they're, that they're sneaky, although a good portion of them are. It's that they can't even trust themselves. They are not to the developmental age to practice discipline and clear thinking. That's why they shouldn't be voting. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, we don't trust them. We don't trust them because they can't trust themselves and they do not understand that yet. So what do we do with our young people? We make sure uh, we don't say, let's have youth bent, pile them all up in dark corners, right? Because we're smarter than that. We understand that if they are in that environment, they do not have the discipline to make sure that they keep themselves clean and righteous. Now let's apply that spiritually. If you know that you can't trust yourself because within you lies the temptation to sin, then what is the smartest way to keep your life clean and straight? Don't ever go into a dark corner with temptation in the first place. Stay out of those situations. You know how Paul said it? He said we're to give none occasion to the flesh. Give none occasion to the flesh. So we see the occasion of temptation. But now let's think about this. What about the offspring of temptation? If this analogy holds, then we're saying lust is the mama, enticement is the daddy. What kind of little baby do they have? Let's have the reveal party. What kind of baby are they going to have? Well, the Bible says in verse 15, then lust, uh, when lust hath conceived, what does it bring forth? What does it bear? It bringeth forth sin. Now, you're going to say, well, preacher, I already knew that. If that's all you was going to tell me, you could have emailed it to me. I could have said it at the house. But let's stop and think about this for a moment. If the illustration is that the the committing of sin is like the bringing forth of a child into the world. What does that tell us about sin? Well, it tells me two things. One, it makes me think of the love of the sin that we commit. I, I would say it this way, our foolish attachment to our sin. You know, parents are basically, when it comes to their kids, they're basically fundamentally irrational. You'll do things for your kids that don't make no sense. You'll do things for your kids that if you were left unchecked, that would harm them because you love and are addicted to their praise and approval. Now you say, but preacher, why do people raise good kids? Because hopefully they have the depth and spiritual understanding and foresight to do not what is uh, desirable to their kids, but what is developmental for their kids. Now you say, well, preacher, how do you know that? Because one day they become grandparents. And then it ain't their job to raise them. And they turn into irrational people. They go to the store and say... Honey, you see that six foot teddy bear? I think our kids, our grandkids need that. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs that. They'll say, you see this nine foot tall robot that, that plays songs and, and has loud noises. And when you're walking down the hall, it, it screams out at you at 2 a.m. and scares you half to death. I think our grandkids need that. And heaven help you if you ever go into a music store and walk by. I'm, I'm doing a little preaching now and walk by a drum set. Amen. But you see, you're not kept in check by the responsibility of raising them. And let me say this, that's a beautiful thing. Can I just give a little counsel to our parents, me first? first. We ought to raise our kids so our parents don't have to. We ought to raise our kids so our parents don't have to. If, if I will discipline my kids correctly, then it is a gift to my parents to be able to send them to them and then load them up on pixie sticks and, and, and orange soda and everything and then send them home. And yeah, it's going to be a headache for me. And I'm going to be up till 1 a.m. having to whip them half to death to get them to go to bed. But guess what? Your parents did that for you. 
We owe it to them. That's appropriate. And for all the joking that, that I'm doing, I think it's a great gift that we as parents can give to our parents to allow them to be grandparents. Allow them to be grandparents. But let me say with that, that irrationality that develops, it is manifesting grandparents, but it exists in the heart of a parent. There's not a parent alive that wouldn't love to do any and everything that their children ask and request for them to do. The only thing that restrains us is discipline. You know what that tells me? We have sometimes an irrational love of our child. We, we will do what feels good in that moment because we are sometimes being selfish and short-sighted. What does that tell us about our relationship to sin? It tells me this. When I let sin in my life, I will develop an irrational attachment to it. I will do things that will destroy me. I will do things that will destroy the people I love. I will do things that are short-sighted and short-lived that destroy the uh, potential for a good life because I am foolishly attached to my sin. That's why it's so dangerous to let sin in our life. We say, well, preacher, I'm just flirting with sin. I'll just commit this sin one time. No, it's like giving birth to a child. Now it's yours and you own it. It's made in your image. And you're not going to throw it away so easily. I see the love of the sin that we have. But then I, I think about the life of the sin that we have. You know, when you, when you, uh, when you bear that child, if the Lord blesses it, unless some tragedy takes it, it's going to go on to outlive you. It's not just going to be born and then go away. It's going to go on. It's going to live. It's going to develop. It's going to grow. And it's going to go on, presumably, to produce other lives. And you know, that's what sin does in our life as well. We commit that sin and we think we're going to commit it and walk away from it. But I got news for you. There ain't nobody going to come file papers and adopt your sin. You, you committed it. You're going to have to raise it. And it's not going to go away just in the next few moments. It's going to stick with you. It's going to bear with you. I would say this. If the love of the sin is our foolish attachment, then I see here in the life of the sin, it's further advancement. It's not just going to go away once we commit it. It's going to hang around. You say, and, and, and let me just for half a moment, let me jettison the, the analogy because I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But you say, preacher, what can we do about that sin? It's why we have to mortify our sin. It's not going to go away on its own. It's got to be dealt with, right? We've got to deal with it. We've got to put away our sin. It's not just going to go away on its own. It's got a life of its own now, and it will go on and produce other sins in our life and lead us down a path. I had a keen awareness when we were having both of our children that I was committing myself the rest of my life to love and, and to care for these children. I've seen my parents love and care for us. I mean, they still, they call us, they check on us, they make sure we've got what we need. When we come through the house, mom half chokes us to death trying to feed us. And, and, and anytime I've got anything I'm doing, if I'm working on anything around the house, dad's calling me. Is everything going all right? Is everything all right? They don't just, when they turn 18, quit being your child. They're your child for the rest of your life. And, and I recognize when I was having my boys, listen, th this is it. They're going to be mine. They're going to have my heart for the rest of my days. Why don't we have that clear of an understanding about the impact of sin in our life? We don't just walk away from it. We're going to be connected to it for the rest of our life. We need to understand the danger of that sin in our life. And somebody's going to say, well, preacher, how do we ever deal with it? We'll say a word before we're done. But we just need to understand at this point that sin don't just go away. It's going to take root in our life. So I see the initial birth of sin, and then I see the inevitable path of sin. What does the Bible say here? Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You understand that, that, that life is terminal, right? Everybody. People say sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're dying. This person's dying. That person's dying. And I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to be unkind. I understand untimely death and sorrow and loss, but you understand that we are all dying. From the moment we're born, we're dying. 
We are set on a path of death. And it is inevitable for us. Now, there's a generation that will escape physical death uh, by means of the rapture, but that is the anomaly. That's the exception to the rule. And you know the exception, all it does is prove the rule, right? Uh, the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. Every life, uh, if the Lord tarries is coming, every life ends in death sooner or later in one way or another. You know, sin is the same way. It will always bring death into your life. Think about this with me. The Bible says when it is finished, I notice the finish of sin. What does it mean when a person dies? Well, it basically means that their life, that their soul has outlived their body's utility. That's what it means. Uh, you don't, you don't cease to exist anymore, right? Your, your soul and your spirit, they still live. They go on into eternity, either into the presence of God or into hell and condemnation, depending on whether you've received Christ as your Savior. But what's happened is your soul and your spirit have outlived your body's utility. Your body breaks down. Maybe through some great immediate trauma. Maybe through a car crash. It may be through an accident. Or it may just be through the decline of your health. But one way or another, what happens, it outlives its utility. You know what happens in your life? Eventually, uh, sin outlives your life's utility. Once it's consumed everything, once it's destroyed everything, it will be finished with you. And you know what will happen? There will be nothing left. You say, preacher, I can go on enjoying my sin forever. No, there's coming a day it's going to be finished. It's going to be finished. It's going to be done with the utility of your life. What a, what a shame it'd be to die though we're saved and, and, and on our way to heaven, but to die our life broken and used up by sin. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? But there's coming a day sin will finish with us. And then I see the fruit of sin, it bringing forth death. Now, uh, just like it did in the Garden of Eden, and I think that's probably what James had in mind whenever he penned this, was he was thinking about how Adam and Eve, and Adam particularly, ate of the fruit of the tree, and then that brought about death. Paul said it this way, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, uh, in that all have sinned. And he goes on to say uh, the universality of death is proof of the universality of sin. In fact, everybody dies is proof that everybody is a sinner by nature. But you understand that the physical death is secondary to that spiritual death. That Adam died spiritually the day he ate of the fruit. It took some 900 years for his body to catch up. But he died spiritually the moment that he ate of that. You know, that's how sin is in our life as well. There are certain sins that you may commit that may never physically uh, deplete your body. But they spiritually bring a dampening of your relationship with God, of your obedience to Him, of the usefulness of your life. Brings all those things about. And you may not see the external evidence of that for a long, long time, but it happens immediately in your life. That change takes place and it brings forth death. You say, preacher, uh, the sin I'm committing, it won't kill me, maybe not on the outside, but it will kill your spiritual life, your walk with God. So I see the inevitable path of sin. And then finally, and I'm just going to mention this to encourage you a little bit and I'm going to close. Somebody's going to say, all right, preacher, you beat up on us all night. What about me? I've done things wrong. Let me raise my hand with you. I've sinned. I've messed up. What happens when temptation overtakes us? We've talked about the origin. We've talked about the occasion. We've talked about the offspring. But what about the overtaking of temptation? What happens in a person's life when they yield to it? Well, I notice two things here. Look at verse 16. Very short verse. But the first one, James sums up why he's telling them this. He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. You know, that word err, it means to stray. It means to veer off the path and go wandering off. 
What's the result when temptation overtakes us? It will lead us away from the place and plan and path that God has for our life. You know, the great danger in sin in our lives is not even what initially transpires. It's just most of the time, it's the first step off the footpath. That's why we play around with it. Because we think, you know, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's just a small thing. Nobody even knows about it. And God will forgive me anyway. That's true if you seek God's forgiveness. But can I tell you a tricky thing about sin? It gets you heading in a path and you won't stop long enough to turn around and look back at the Father's house as you're headed off to the far country. You know, that prodigal son, he could have stopped any place, Brother Ken, between there and the pig pen. But he didn't. He just kept walking. You've heard this before, that every great journey begins with one step. And I say that every every journey of sin's destruction, it begins with one step. There was one moment when a person was walking with God and living for the Lord. And I'm not saying this perfect, but when they sinned, they get that right and confess it to God. But there was a moment when they walked off into sin and they put on the mask of a hypocrite and they said, I'm content for there to be this thing between me and God. And that began them on a path that led them to destruction. The danger in sin is not just where it finds you, it's where it leads you and where it leaves you. Sooner or later, it's going to take you down. We try to teach young people this, don't we? We point to the drunkard and we say it started with one drink. We point at the dope addict and say it started with, with one, one uh, shot or one hit. And we try to teach them that that sin is going to lead you down the wrong path. But that's not just true for the, for the dope head or the drunkard. It's true for us as God's people sitting in, a, in an independent Baptist church house on a Wednesday night prayer meeting. We too can be led down that path. It may not be of any of those matters of substance abuse or visible apparent immorality in our life, but pride and disobedience to God and bitterness and rebellion and all these things can twist a man's soul. And that all starts with that one step. What's the result when temptation overtakes? You take a step off the path. And when you step off one path, you've started a new path. I know where the path leads. For God's will for your life. It leads to joy. It leads to the glory of God and praise unto Him. It leads to a fruitful life that honors God and reaches people with the gospel and edifies believers and strengthens them. But now where's that path taking you that you just stepped on? I can tell you where the path God puts you on is taking you. Can you tell me where the path that you just put yourself on is taking you? I would say this. We see the result when temptation overtakes us. It causes us to err. But I like this. There is a resource when temptation overtakes. So preacher, I don't see it in that passage. Sure you do. Look at the end of verse 16. Look at those last three words. He says, do not err my beloved brethren. We find that there are two things that are unchanged when a man lets temptation overtake him. One is the love of God that God has for him. In other words, it don't matter how far you go, you're still going to be beloved. You're still going to be loved by God. God's never going to give up on you. He's never going to walk away from you. He's never going to turn His back on you. And then two, we notice you'll still be a child of God if you've received Christ as your Savior. In other words, you're still going to be beloved and you're still going to be a brethren no matter where sin takes you. And it reminds me of this, that no matter where I'm at, my relationship to God, not my relationship with God, my relationship with God can change a million times. But my relationship to God, meaning I'm His child He is my Father. I am His. I belong to His. He's got a home for me in heaven. I'm saved by His grace. That relationship to God, that does not change. It stays the same no matter where we go. And not only that, that He loves us, that He cares for us. And within this, we find the resource. So preacher, what do I do? Well, what did the prodigal do? 
right? Uh, the Bible says when he came to himself, he thought of his father. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to eat and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Here's what he said. He, he thought within himself and he said, you know, I got nobody. I don't know where to go. But I've got a daddy that loves me and he's still my daddy. He didn't say, I will arise and go to that man that used to be my father. He didn't say, I will arise and go and hope that he lets me in. He knew that his daddy still loved him and his daddy was still his daddy. <laughs> Reminds me of what John says to us in 1 John 2. He said, preacher, what do I do? I've let sin in my life. Well, John spends the first chapter of John telling folks that they're going to sin, but they shouldn't sin. Uh, he, he spends the first uh, chapter saying everybody sins, but it's not the will of God for you to sin. God doesn't desire for you to sin, but if anybody ever says they never sin, they're lying to you. They're trying to sell something to you. Uh, they're not telling you the truth. And so then he turns around in chapter 2 and he says this, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. He says, I'm trying to get you to understand it's not the will of God for you to sin. God can't be tempted with evil. Let no man say when he is tempted, he's tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. I'm writing this so you don't sin. But he says, and if any man sin, you know why? Because God knows us. He knows us. He says, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. How's He going to do that? Well, He's the propitiation for our sins. He's the payment for our sins. He's the substitute for our sins. He's the sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So preacher, what happens if I let, let the devil win in my life and let sin win in my life? Well, just remember God loves you. And He's still your Heavenly Father if you've ever received Christ as your Savior. If you've been born. Now, if you've never been saved, if you've never been born again, He's not your Father. He's your God. But He's not your Father. He is your Creator. But He is not your Father. One day He'll judge you in your unrighteousness. He'll condemn you to hell. You're condemned already, the Bible says. He came not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't come to condemn the world. The world is condemned already because they've not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. If you're lost then you're under condemnation. But if you're a child of God tonight, if you've received Christ as your Savior, asked Him to forgive you and save you, believed on Him for salvation, then rest assured, you say, Preacher, I've let sin in my life. Uh, what do I do? Don't forget that you're still a child of God. Still a child of God. You may be surprised at your sin. I promise you there's other folks surprised at it. But God's not surprised at it. He knew when He made you His child, He knew you still go sin. You're still His child. And guess what? He still loves you. So go back to the Father's house. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to cleanse you and you'll find He'll restore you and He'll give you the fellowship that you once had. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. Father, I pray that Your people get help tonight. Lord, there's not a person in this room that's not going to face temptation. There may be something active present in their life that they're struggling with. There may be nothing right now that they could put a name to, but they just know because I know and we all know that we live in the infirmity of our flesh. And they know they're going to face temptation. We all are. Lord, there may be some here tonight that have yielded temptation. There's some matter that stands between them and you. Whatever the case, I pray they find a place at this altar and they deal with that, Lord. It's not going to be helped by ignoring it. It's not going to go away. It's just going to grow larger. So I pray they'd find a place down here and they'd bring it before you and let you cleanse it in your blood and let you wash them from it. Lord, bless this time we have in Christ's name with our heads bowed, our eyes.